Well, I am so glad we can have this series on evangelism, practical messages, I hope, for you. Um, we're slowing things down a little in Book of Acts, gleaning principles from it, what we call the basics of evangelism, um, ground rules. I hope they're making an impact in you, whether you're young or old, this is something you can apply directly. Um, just kind of having an in-house conversation about our own personal witnessing. How do we overcome fears? Is our thinking straight about evangelism? Where are we going as a church with our local evangelism? What part can I have and you have in it? I don't want to guilt you. You know, I think most of you understand your responsibility to witness. Um, I just want you to see how God can use you, that God can use normal Christians There are people God wants to reach through you that I can't reach. The leaders of this church can't reach, you know, and and Franklin Graham can't reach. (laughs) But you maybe can because God uses you, and this is so important. So let's start by reading our text again, Acts 11, 19 to 26, and then just keep drawing these ground rules from it. Verse 19, look at it, follow along, please. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks or the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for... And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Great passage. It's an historical account, but it's full of information about the early church's evangelism. I love getting these pictures. What did they act like, these early Christians? What was it like to do evangelism in the early church? Well, they set a pattern. It's history, so you can't read history as everything in there we're supposed to imitate. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. The way we judge to know whether we're to imitate this or not is if these things are repeated in instruction in the epistles to all the churches. So if we're taught to do evangelism and we see the pattern of it, we put that together and we understand this is still our responsibility. Not everything you read in history is to be imitated. It's written as history. It's recording what happened to them. But here we have a pattern. We have a pattern of evangelism, and I believe a lot of it can be directly applied. It corresponds to what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. As far as what is our main aim in this series, it's that God's already using us to spread the gospel, but God can use us more locally. There are different things that different people here can do to help the spread of the gospel. Hopefully you'll hear something that you can latch hold to, and you can think about your ministry, you can think about where you live, think about your skills, find some way to do evangelism. But we all need to have a biblical approach to evangelism, and so we're going through these ground rules for biblical evangelism. Last time, if you missed it, we went through the first three ground rules 
The first was, and, and maybe we should just say this again, that everybody, every Christian is responsible to do evangelism. Just like every Christian is to pray, every Christian is to give something of themselves to service in the body of Christ, give of their monies. Every Christian is to have a testimony and have the gospel and share that with others. Put away your excuses, your fear and your timidity are not an excuse. We all have a responsibility in that. In fact, just say witnessing is part of being a Christian. It's part of being a Christian. The second ground rule was to start with your natural connections. Use your natural connections. We saw that in verses 19 and 20. These were both from verses 19 and 20. When you ask yourself, well, where do I get started? Just look at where God has already placed you. Who are the contacts you already have? Family members, neighbors, colleagues, people that you play a sport with or you have a hobby, whatever it may be. You know, these guys here were scattered. And what did they do? They went and naturally found connections when they were scattered. And they had connections through business or through relatives. And it says then the word of God spread. How? Well, it spread there. It spread in their synagogues. It spread wherever they could find someone that was willing to listen. So I would say trust God's providence in your life, who he has already connected you with. Evangelism should happen in the normal course of your life. We don't have to have a big evangelism campaign for you to do evangelism. The third ground rule was to preach the right message. Now, you might say, this is so obvious. Why do we even have to take time with this? Well, it's a ground rule. What happens if you get out there and you're all excited and you talk about things, but you're missing the mark? You're not really saying what God wants you to say. Well, what was the right message? Here in verse 20, it says they were preaching what? Who? The Lord Jesus, right? That's the right message. Well, there's a lot behind that phrase, the Lord Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, what he accomplished by those things. What do those mean? Why did Jesus come into the world? What did he do? That's what you're preaching. You're preaching Jesus. And you're preaching him as Lord. You're not offering him as one possibility among many. Christ is going to come back. Every knee is going to bow. You're warning them of that. You're going to have to bow before Jesus. You'll either do that unwillingly or you'll do that willingly, but you will bow, right? This is not an option. The whole world has been given over to Jesus. He is the authority over heaven and earth. He said so. And so everyone's going to have to reckon with him. They're not going to have to reckon with Muhammad. You're never going to have to explain your life to Muhammad or Buddha. or anything. You have to explain everything you do, no matter where you live in this world, to Jesus Christ. So we want to speak the gospel. We don't want to get sidetracked into talking about religion or arguing about the right way of baptizing people or whatever. It's the gospel we want to talk about. That's what saves, so speak it. And by the way, the gospel is not you can have your very best life now. Sorry, your best life is still to come. That's why there is a resurrection. Now, we can have a suffering life with some blessings now, but we have been promised suffering and beyond suffering, we've been promised glory. But first... The Bible is very clear. You pick up your cross, you follow Jesus, and then all the blessings come. Don't give a false gospel or false understanding of the Christian life. Pick up your cross, follow Jesus. He promises you utter glory in the future that's so great that the sufferings of the present day cannot even be compared to that. That's the right message. All right, now we've kind of caught up with ourselves. We're somewhere in verse 21, and we're going to ground rule number four. Rely on the power of God. And this is so important. Look at verse 21. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. There are a lot of things that we do in life, and it seems like everything is stacked against us. You know, Murphy's Law. 
Seems like no matter what I do, things don't work out, you know? <laughs> you wake up with the best of intentions and your day is all messed up. You think I'm going to get into my week and you find out, ah, oh, now I have this trial. But let me tell you something wonderful. When you go out and you evangelize, God is not against you. When you go out and evangelize, God is actually working in your favor. The hand of the Lord was with these people as they evangelized. Isn't that wonderful to know? That the hand of God is with you. When you go out and you say, okay, 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 I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to tell him, okay, here it comes. You can picture behind you whatever you want to picture. The hand of God is moving powerfully to bless you and work with you. You know what the hand of the Lord means, don't you? It means the power of God. Did you know that? It means the power of God. We use our hands to accomplish lots of things, right? Well, Scripture speaks of God's hands in an, as an anthropomorphism. What is an anthropomorphism? It's speaking of God in human terms so we can understand God a little better. God, of course, is eternal Spirit. That's what John chapter 4 and verse 24 says. God does not have an actual physical body. But God made our physical bodies to correspond to something in His own image. And so there's some truth we glean about God when we look at the human body and we realize that in our intellect and in our body we were made in the image of God. And so we glean some understanding of Him. We, we get some correspondence there. And so what does the hand mean for us? It means going out and accomplishing and doing something. When the hand of God is with you, think of that powerful hand that's working in your favor. What you don't want is the hand of God to be working what? Against you. Because there's a lot of verses, and I looked them up. There are a lot of verses that said, and the hand of God was against so-and-so. Well, now there's a frustrating enterprise when God's hand is against you. That could be a whole side sermon I could get into right now. Why are you pursuing your own will if you're frustrated with it? It's because God is against you there. He's trying to get you to go in a different direction, right? But I'm not going to preach that sermon today. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 15, concerning the generation that would not trust God and enter into the promised land, remember under Moses, it says there, moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them. Those were the Israelites. To destroy them from within the camp until they all perish. Remember, everybody 20 years of age and older, what? They died off in the wilderness. Why? The hand of God was against them. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, also speaks of God's power. It says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He, not the king, but God, turns it. What's the it? The, the king's heart, right? Turns it wherever God wishes. So there's the king sitting on his throne. He thinks he's in charge of his realm. And he says, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and all he does is end up deciding exactly what God's sovereign will is, the hand of God. Paul saw God's hands bringing swift judgment against a false prophet in Acts chapter 13 and verse 11. Remember, that guy was blinded and he couldn't speak. And uh, so, so God, I think he just got blinded and so... It was a judgment against that guy, so no one would listen to him. But here, for these Christians who are evangelizing, it says the power of God was working for them. By the way, working for the Christians in Antioch in the same way the hand of God and the power of God had worked for the Christians in Jerusalem. So when you're reading about the evangelism that happened in Jerusalem and it was working well, and you say, wow, God's hand and power was really with them, now we're in a different city. Now we're in an increasingly Gentile church. 
It's in Antioch. It's many miles away from Jerusalem, and we see the same thing. The hand of God is working in their favor. Now, it doesn't say this here, but reading other scriptures, I can guarantee you that one of the reasons why the hand of God was working with these Christians is that they were praying for open doors for evangelism. Do you agree with that? There's not too much that happens success-wise in the Christian church without prayer, without Christians getting together and praying that God will work and open doors. So I believe they were praying, and I think when you look at this church in Antioch in chapter 13 elsewhere, you see it was a, a great praying church. You should never evangelize without prayer. Okay, I'll say it again. You should never evangelize without prayer. That would be futile to think that you can go out there and, you know, I'm going to go convert me a sinner today. I'm just going to grab him and convert him. You have no idea the power it takes to convert a sinner, and you don't have that power. Jesus does, but Jesus is willing to use that power if you ask for it humbly. Prayer attends the gospel. Prayer moves the hand of God. Where prayer ascends, the hand of God moves. Dr. MacArthur, in his book on prayer, Alone with God, writes, Prayers are the nerves that move the muscles of omnipotence. Prayer is not an exercise in futility. Prayer is the means by which God's will is carried out. Brothers and sisters, it's God's will we evangelize the greater Columbia area. Paul appealed for prayer in evangelism in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. There he wrote, finally, brethren, pray for us. He was talking about his apostolic team that surrounded him, that was traveling from place to place, witnessing the gospel. He said, pray for us. Listen to this, to this petition, that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. You know what that verb spread rapidly literally is? Runs. Pray that the, the word of the Lord will run. I love that. Will run rapidly. You think of God's word running and spreading. This was the very verse that the Lord put on my heart when I came out of anesthesia four years ago when I had my major surgery. It was the first thing that came out of my mouth, and I don't know, I was saying it to my mother and to others, we have got to pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. It was just coming out of my mouth. I had a sense of urgency at that time, and I, I still have it now and pray that you have it as well. We should be earnestly praying to see the hand of God move in raising up local evangelism efforts. Please, I would even beg you, pray that God will send out workers. Pray that you will be one of those workers. And I think about how Teresa volunteered to go to Togo. How many of you are volunteering just to go to Laurel or go to Burtonsville or go to one of the neighboring cities, right? When you know the hand of God is not against you but working for you, shouldn't that brighten your outlook on evangelism? Shouldn't that make you a little less afraid of doing it? Instead of having fear in evangelism, Instead of thinking of yourself, I'm all alone, what can I do? Instead of thinking, you know, that person's never going to become a Christian. You should speak with confident faith. Why? God's power attends your efforts. 
Right before I got saved on the college campus as a freshman, somebody, actually a very good person who'd been very kind to me and had witnessed to me, said to some of his Christian friends, Tom will never become a Christian. <laughs> it was just a couple weeks before I converted. There ain't nothing on anyone's forehead or face that says they look like they're about to become a Christian. In fact, some people who seem really interested in religious things never repent. And other people who seem to be just abject people that are just so against the gospel, they are the ones that God moves in their heart and changes them. It's amazing. Never be surprised when someone responds to the gospel coming out of your mouth. Coming out of your mouth. God is at work when you witness. Isn't this the very power that Jesus promised would attend his church and attend the apostles' eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus way back when we started the book of Acts in chapter 1 and verse 8? What did Jesus say before he had ascended into heaven to the apostles? Do you remember his words? He said, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my what? witnesses. I'm not going to leave you alone to witness. I'm not going to leave you without power. I'm going to give you power because you have a worldwide mission. In fact, when I preached back then, these were my very words. I preached, if you caught the enormity of the tasks to witness to the whole world, you know that they would need power. Jesus did not give the disciples a worldwide task of proclaiming the kingdom without giving them the authority and power and ability to do it. Power is the word dunamis. It actually sounds like dynamite. We get our word from that. But don't think of something that explodes and ruins things like dynamite. No, the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit works to build things up, but it works irrepressibly. The full, enabling, unstoppable ability of God works along with the gospel to change lives to where they can never be unchanged again. Do you know that once someone gets given eternal life, that life can never be reversed. It can never die. Once it's granted, that person is alive for eternity. That's what happened to you and me. The mission of the church is not a human invention. It's not a mere human task. It is a divine impulse working inside of the church, granting the church power. The Holy Spirit's coming is for this new age. The church is for this new age. The mission we have received is new for this age. And the power that we have was not granted in the Old Testament, but is new for this age. That is the power we are to rely on. Even Timothy, as a young pastor, had to be reminded of this power. Maybe you are someone who loves teaching the Word of God. You like doing it inside the walls of Hope Bible Church and you feel comfortable. You like talking about the Word of God in your small group. But you get out there and you get all choked up, you know, I don't know what to say. And uh, fear kind of grips you. Well, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of what? Power, there it is again. Power and love. By the way, the way to overcome timidity is with what? Love. Get past yourself. Love the person more than you love your reputation. Love them. Help them see the light of eternity so they won't be damned forevermore. Love them. And let 
let your reputation be ruined. And actually, your reputation is not going to be ruined if you think about it. A lot of people, though they may scorn you outwardly, they're going to be impressed with your courage. Just stand up, say something, see how God... Well, what if it doesn't come out right? God can still use that. It's amazing. Just, just say something about Christ that's good. Maybe they'll come around and ask you more questions later. The beautiful thing about the power of God is that you don't have to be strong to use it. You can be weak. In fact, if you feel weak, you're actually a better candidate for wielding the power of God. And boy, does that really get rid of our excuses, does it not? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in... It doesn't say strong men. It says in what? Weakness. And you know it. This power comes from the Holy Spirit who resides inside of you and will never leave you. Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I ask you again, do you actively seek to yield yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit? The church, beloved, is not weak. The church is not ill-equipped. The church does not need more of this or more of that before it can be involved in spreading the word. It does not need to wait to witness till we get a hundred more evangelists. The church of Jesus, our blessed Lord, has already been endowed with power from on high that happened as an historical fact 2,000 years ago. Avail yourself of that power. Learn to yield to the fullness of the Spirit. And God's power always works in tandem with God's electing grace. Let me say that also again, because I know when you listen to sermons, you can sometimes check out in the midst of that, but this is one of the more important things, so I'll say this again. God's power works in tandem with his electing grace. Do you know that Jesus placed here in the greater Columbia, Maryland area some elect who are not yet saved? And he placed us as a church here so we would reach those elect. You say, Pastor, I don't know who those elect are. Well, neither do I. And it's good that we don't know. Jesus is not sharing that information with us. Why not? So that we'll go out and witness to who? Everybody. And then who are the elect? The elect will be the ones who respond positively to the gospel. How will we know they're elect? Because they'll end up like you. If you think, you know, one day I just thought it would be a really good idea to believe in Jesus. That's not how you came to faith. God had to overcome your blindness, your deadness, and your stubbornness, and he did it. He granted faith to you. Then you woke up and said, I think I need to believe in Jesus. And it happened in a split second, but it was electing grace. And we could study all of that soteriology and understand how it happens in the Bible. It's fascinating. God gives an inward call. The evangelist is saying, repent and believe in Jesus. And he's waxing eloquent. And a lot of people just listen and it dinks off their ears and they don't really hear it inwardly. But to some people, the elect people, God does a miracle, a miracle of the Spirit. And, and the Word of God penetrates more deeply and summons them out to life. And they come out and they believe. And that's because they are of God's elect. And it's amazing. You know, Paul summarized his evangelism efforts this way because he knew as he preached, some would believe, some would not believe. And he has this, this visual. See if this helps you a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are, he's talking about his, his apostolic evangelism ministry. We are a fragrance of Christ to God 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. In other words, we're going, we're spreading the gospel, and to some it's spreading an aroma of death, from death to death to death. They're being confirmed in their unbelief, and that will be used against them in the day of judgment. But to others, life is spreading the life. One believes and then shares with another, and they believe and shares with another too, and they believe and they share with another four, and they believe and it spreads, and it's a beautiful smelling aroma. And then Paul adds this, and who is adequate for these things? If Paul had to say, I don't feel adequate for this, well, <laughs> we're okay because I don't feel adequate for it either. If you go out there and say, but, 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 what, what, what am I going to say? Can I really do this? You aren't really doing anything. The gospel is going to do it all. You just have to speak the gospel. God uses the power of the gospel to call them inwardly. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, it describes the conversion of a woman named Lydia. And by the way, all Paul was doing there was preaching the same message he preaches everywhere, right? Some believe, some don't believe. And it says this of her, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. There's your electing grace. God had to open her heart so she could respond. First, God works. Then somebody believes. Do you see it? Paul wasn't the power. The gospel was the power. God backs up his words with power. God opens hearts to believe. But what if he doesn't use me to open somebody's heart? Cut that out, please. You have no idea whom God's going to use. You could lead the President of the United States to a saving knowledge of the gospel because all it is is the gospel that changes anybody's life. I told you this is like an in-house talk. So guys, if some of you have been checking out on me, you hate messages on evangelism. I don't know why you came back because you knew this was going to be a part two. <laughs> it's going to be a part three next week. I don't know how many parts we're going to have. I figured that out yet. If you're honest, you don't like messages on evangelism. You know, and I used to hate some of them too. You know, people would be, people would be up there and they'd sing that song, people need the Lord, you know. And I would, I'd be like, I know people need the Lord, but I've been witnessing a lot. Ain't nobody getting saved. People need the Lord. And I'm like, quit throwing the guilt on me. I know they need the Lord. I wish someone would just respond, you know. I, I, I'm not doing that to you. I'm telling you that we just need to continue chugging along and being faithful. God will use us. You don't need to hate evangelism. Maybe the last 10 people you talk to, they didn't want anything to do with your Jesus. That's part of evangelism. Part of evangelism is being rejected. It's okay. You have to determine ahead of time, if I lose this friendship, if I don't get invited to the family gatherings, it's okay. It's okay. I already have a family. They're right here. I'm going to be okay with the consequences. That's part of evangelism. You just have to accept that, okay? You know what else, you know what else is part of evangelism, and maybe this is the part you've missed, is God can use anybody. Through the power of the gospel. What does Romans 1.16 say, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? It is the power of God for salvation to any who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When you spread God's word at that very moment, you're doing an activity that not only puts a smile on God's face, but activates the power of God behind you. 
Having God on your team is better than having Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback. When God is working on your team, you're guaranteed some victory. In fact, he guarantees he will work. Nobody can tell God, stop it. Enough. No more converts. Nobody can tell God that. So when you're feeling woeful and doleful, and you're thinking, no one ever listens to me. You know, I never get to lead anybody to the Lord. No matter how many times I try, that is surely the discouragement of the devil. My advice to you is ignore it. I remember early in the church plant, we were going door to door. We had no money for any, you know, evangelism events. So we just went door to door. We knocked on hundreds of doors. And one day I was discouraged. I'd been yelled at. Most of the people don't even open the door. If they do, they don't want to talk. Just keep moving. I already have a church, blah, 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 you know. One day I got back in the car. I said, I'm done. If I, I'd led people to Christ earlier in my life, but it seemed in this church plant going door to door, nobody was becoming a Christian. And I said to Susan, I said, if we can't lead people to Christ here, how are we even going to plant this church? I was ready to go back to California, call it quits. And um, so Susan very wisely said, well, let's pray. So we prayed in the car. Of course, I got back out. The very next house we went to, the man said, I've been looking for a church. I want to learn more about the Bible. We're not sure whether he got saved or not, but he came and attended, became a member. Uh, so we think he was saved. For many years he was with us. It was just a reminder from the Lord, I'll build my church. I'll build my church. It's my church. You just keep being faithful. I've had my share of disappointments, trust me. The vast majority of people I talk to, there's no magic wand I know of. But um, I keep going. Keep going. Keep witnessing. I hope you do too. And um, I believe that it's not about you and me. I believe it's about just speaking the right gospel and letting God do what he does. You know? What does God's word say about God's word? Isn't that an interesting subject? It says this in Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, sometimes in your evangelism, people don't become Christians because you didn't finish the message. You got sidetracked. We talked about that last time. If they will let you finish, finish. That gospel message is so important. If they look at first like they're rolling their eyes, they're looking at their watch, they just want to get away from you, and you ask them, may I just share with you how I know that I have eternal life and how you can know it too, and they say, go ahead, finish it. Even if they look like, you know, they hate you, you know, like you're like a social outcast, you know. Finish it. Finish the gospel. Even people visiting church can get saved. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 24 says. It says, if people are prophesying, if everyone were prophesying in church and an unbeliever came in the midst of the, of the, the congregational meeting and he entered in, he could be convicted by all and was called to account by all because he was hearing the word in his own language versus tongues. He heard it in his own language. And, and he was convicted of his sin. That's why we invite people to church, not because inviting people to church is evangelism. It's a means to do evangelism because they can hear the word of God, okay? That's ground rule number four. Now we go to the fifth ground rule. And this is just as important. This is a kind of a freeing concept for you. It's also in verse 21. It's this. Leave the results to God. 
Leave the results to God. Look at verse 21 again. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. This could be so freeing to you as an evangelist. If you understand this, it could really lift the burden off of your shoulders and, and place it where it belongs, on the God's shoulders. What is it, again, I ask, that makes you a good evangelist? It is your faithfulness to speak, not, please listen to this, not the results, not how many people get saved. Now, again, I have to say, in terms of history, this was a great moment for the church. Speaking here as a Christian who loves the Lord Jesus and loves his church, this was a jubilant, maybe even ecstatic moment for the church. Many, many came to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. I don't know what really tugs at your heart, what gets you all excited. I don't know if it's the football game today or whatever it is. What do you really get excited about? This is the kind of news that gets me excited. When I hear a report at such and such a place, many are turning to the Lord. And the secular news doesn't report this, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we read in Drudge or MSNBC or something like that, and a great many people turned to the Lord Jesus? Yeah, I have to wake up after that. That's not real. <laughs> These were great results, incredible results. But again, remember, Luke is writing history. He's not guaranteeing that every time we witness to every crowd, these are going to be the results. In fact, the faithfulness of an evangelist is proven the most not when they're getting great results, but what? When they're not getting anybody at all to convert and they still continue to speak the Word of God. Verse 21 is not normal results for evangelism. That's why Luke is recording it. This was remarkable for its exceptionality. The Lord decided early in church history that the Word of Jesus was going to spread rapidly. It was going to have an explosion of believers in the very first decades of the church in its existence. We saw this already in Jerusalem. We saw an explosion of growth in Jerusalem. Let me just remind you of this. Back in chapter 2 and verse 47, it said, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, it said, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Acts 5 and verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then it says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is merely a point of history, though it's exciting. There are many places where the results in the book of Acts and elsewhere were nowhere near this great. Even though the message was the same, the men were the same, the faith in which they preached it were the same. But the results were not the same. There are places that repudiated the word. Look at the results in Athens. Very meager results in evangelism in Athens. Not every place can be described as the Lord Jesus described it in John 4.34, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white for harvest. Not all places are like that. That was true then, but that was not meant to apply to every land and every age. Sometimes the fields require more plowing and more fertilizing than they do harvesting. And the next evangelist down the road who comes along, he's going to get to do the harvest and enter into the labor that you labored in. Are you still willing to do it? Are you still willing to do the plowing and the fertilizing 
if you're not the one that gets to haul in the harvest? We have to think of ourselves as working as a team with other evangelists, other churches, other people that will come along after us. Do you see that? There's that song we sang yesterday in the memorial service, When We All Get to Heaven. Well, one of the things that's going to happen when we all get to heaven is we're going to see how everything was connected. Hey, I witnessed to that guy and he didn't receive the Lord. Yeah, I know, but I came along later and he was prepared. He was ready. He was thinking about the things that you said. And here is Johnny with us now in heaven. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine? Would you ever say at that point in time, ah, it's not worth it if someone doesn't receive Christ immediately? You wouldn't say that if you saw that they're going to get there because you plowed the ground for them, right? Why are there great differences in evangelistic results? Well, I doubt that there's just one factor. Sometimes the people that are doing evangelism are not doing it right. Maybe they're too timid. Maybe they've acted carnally and they're kind of trusting in their own their own uh, schemes, in their own little plots and plans, in their own human persuasion. Maybe they're lazy. They didn't try all that hard. Maybe they didn't even take time to try to study what the gospel is so they could answer questions. They're ill-prepared. The Spirit of God uses hard-working spiritual men and women that are well-versed in the gospel. You want to be a better evangelist, study, pray, work hard. But some of the factors are related to God's election that we have no control over. He just has elected more people in some territories and some ages than in others. We have absolutely no control over those things. We should not fret. We should not give up when the results seem meager. Nor should we brag when the results seem great. Sometimes when the gospel first comes to a brand new location, I mean, it's like the beachhead and someone is arriving and here the gospel is being spoken to a group for the very first time. God has already been, through means we cannot even understand, preparing that group of people to respond to the gospel. If we look back in the book of Acts, we would run into the gospels, right? What would we be reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the preparation of these people for the gospel? Well, here in the first century, the first thing that God did to prepare them is he gave them John the Baptist. Remember him? John the Baptist had an enormous ministry that called not only the nation of Israel but surrounding districts to repentance. And they came and traveled to the Jordan River. Many of them were baptized in the water, and he was preparing them to receive the kingdom and to receive the king. And then they had and heard of, if they were outside of the land, an even greater ministry, this Jesus of Nazareth, whose healing ministry, they'd never heard of anything like it all, casting out demons. No one had ever heard of such power, so extensive. And he preached everywhere. And then he was crucified, and there was news of his resurrection. And it hit that generation hard. Well, all of these factors and probably others helped prepare that generation to accept Jesus as the Messiah by the tens of thousands. Explosive growth, not only there, but throughout the Roman world from people that had been steeped in paganism for centuries. And this is the first message they had ever heard that brought them the light of hope. Not every generation is going to be like this generation. There was a time when the continent of Europe was exploding in terms of evangelism and, and one group of people after another were repenting of their pagan past and were turning to Jesus Christ. Now, just about all of the missionaries, at least in Western Europe, will testify no matter what method of evangelism they use, no matter how faithful and hard they are, 
There is a hardness of heart towards the gospel in Western Europe. Why is that? Because they already had the gospel. And because they turned away from the gospel. In fact, in their schools and in their churches, they repudiated the gospel. And God has had a hand of judicial blindness against that continent, and you don't see a lot of converts there anymore. And that is God's prerogative. The same negative phenomena I believe we are witnessing happening in the good old United States of America. What nation has sent out more missionaries into all the world than the United States of America? What country has resulted in greater spiritual blessing apart from Israel to all of the world than the United States of America? I dare find you will not find one other country that has put as much money, time, training, men and women in foreign missions than the United States of America. And yet we see an entire country now mocking at, laughing at, turning away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you think the courts of heaven do not note that? Man has chosen faith in man, man's potential, man's greatness. Man, 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 not Christ. It's man's education and man's evolution. Man's liberal ideology dominates our campuses. It's all false thinking. It's all wrong thinking. It leaves no place for the sinfulness of man and the judgment of God and the truth of Scripture. And they're rejecting Scripture. They're rejecting God's revelation of truth. Brothers and sisters, that invites the angry judicial hand of God against our nation. We are seeing it and we are feeling it. We should not expect everywhere we go grand number of converts. We understand the times in which we live. We know what's going on. Just like God was angry with Israel for rejecting the gospel, do you know the book of Acts ends in chapter 28? And verse 26 is very close to the end with very sad words about Israel that says this, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. In other words, we're going to keep sending you evangelists, but you're not going to get converted because the judgment of God is on you. A hardening Paul writes in the book of Romans, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Oh, yes, God is in charge of whole people's groups. Who receives the gospel and who does not? Judicial hardening because they would not listen. God has made it harder and harder for them to listen. That means sometimes the pickings are going to be thin, brothers and sisters. But people in our situation should not sit on the sidelines of evangelism just screaming judgment with a sign in our hand, you know? The end is coming, the end is coming. We need to keep hunting and fishing and finding those who are responding to the gospel because there are enough of them. In fact, I would say, why are we not targeting them? You say, but who are they? <laughs> Well, I'll give you from my experience what I've seen, and I would urge us to go after them. Who's responding to the gospel? Answer number one, young people. Why are we not targeting high schoolers and those in the college age? We are privileged to have a full-time evangelist we support in Annapolis here. 
There are other campuses too. I got saved on the college campus. Just show of hands, how many of you got saved either as a high schooler or as a college student? Raise your hand. Raise it higher. Look at that. How many of you got saved? How many of you got saved in, in uh, elementary school or in junior high, something like that? Look at that. Guys, look around. Why are we not targeting the young people? Young people respond to the gospel. Why? Because they're making up their, their idea about what they're going to do for life. We should be targeting them. We should be going after them. It should be part of our strategy. We should be on the campuses. Who else responds to the gospel? This is, this is not rocket science. Another group that respond to the gospel are the needy. You know, the ones that don't have health and wealth. They're sick. They're in prisons. They're in hospitals. They're ones the care ministry outreaches to. They're the homeless. They're the ones without money. Anyone hurting. Somehow, their eyes get open to their needs sooner than those that are proud and rich. Have you noticed? Shouldn't we be taking advantage of that as well? How about a concerted effort to reach the many, many internationals that God has brought to our doorstep? We have over a 100 countries, I'm sure, represented just in the greater Baltimore, Washington area. God has brought them to our doorstep. They don't have our American heritage. They're coming from other nations. Some of them are very curious about Christianity or about American religion, and we have an opportunity to reach them. Many of them are studying to go back to their country and maybe even be leaders in their country. We have incredible opportunity to impact not only locally but internationally. Their ears, we have found, are more open. We should have dozens of you volunteering to reach internationals with the gospel of Jesus. And then there are those of the lower income. James chapter 2 and verse 5 says that though they don't have riches in this life, God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in what? Faith. He chose them to be rich in faith. We should also be making an effort to bring the gospel to Roman Catholics. Large numbers of Roman Catholics are open to the gospel of grace because they never were taught that. They've been taught a works system over and over again. They use the word grace. They don't even know what it means. And they've heard the secular news expose their church for all of the carnality and hypocrisy. And many of them are just fed up with their church. And you bring them a true gospel of grace and explain it to them. And their eyes are open for the first time and they respond. We should have some of you who formerly were Roman Catholics and you know exactly what I'm talking about, leading the way with a concerted and joint effort to reach them. My personal favorite group to witness to are liberal Protestants because that's the church I grew up in. And I know their mentality. They deny all of the supernatural in the Bible, but they think they draw an ethic from the Bible. And I love pointing out to them that the angels in the Bible are true and the miracles in the Bible are true, and that's really what you're going to have to come to believe if you want to be a Christian indeed. Anybody you choose, I didn't mean to limit it to those groups. Anybody you choose to witness to, be careful with your expectations. Don't limit your evangelism efforts. If you think, but what if I put all of this time into it and only, only one gets saved? Only one? I'd like you to stand in the courts of heaven with me again in your imagination. And you're standing there with that only one. And do you see the smile on his face as he sees the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if he's allowed to, he's looking across the great chasm and he sees Hades and those burning and not able to be quenched in their thirst. And you look at that one. Was, was that day worth suspending your chores 
suspending the things that you were doing, having your, your daily routine interrupted, was it worth it? I think you'll say it was. Only one soul saved. That would make me thrilled. Bill Bright, you remember him? The former head of Campus Crusade for Christ. His theology was not always the best it should have been. I'll freely admit that. But he was a committed evangelist. And he used to say this, successful witnessing is taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's true. That is true. Leave the results to God. That is not your business. And if that is your business, you will either change and twist and pervert the gospel to try to make it more acceptable and easier for people to accept it, or you'll quit evangelizing altogether and just develop kind of a dour and a bitter attitude towards unbelievers. Some of our, the younger people in our church, I heard through the grapevine, were very curious about this other church that took over our last rental place and wanted to go visit it. What was going on? It was evidently quite a show they put on on Sunday morning, a light show and audio visuals, very dramatic, very professional. We read in the Washington Post, they're giving away automobiles. Some of you are going to want to get up and leave now, go claim, <laughs> go claim your Toyota for God. When you change what church is all about, and you can't find any of that in, in the New Testament, you can't read about the early Christians doing that. The early Christians were committed to worship. They were committed not to a show, not to, not to the display of emotions, but to learn the Word of God, be dedicated to the apostles' teaching. The love of Jesus was enough excitement for their soul. They didn't need a show. They didn't need phoniness. They didn't need to, to water down the gospel and not speak about sin and not call people sinners and all the rest of that. That's what churches have to do to grow large in our kind of, kind of culture. Don't talk about sin. Don't call them to repentance. Make this easier. Let's just drop some parts of the Bible and not talk about that. We could grow 10 times the size we are if we took that philosophy. That's not New Testament Christianity. I would rather die than do that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a heart for reaching out with everything we have and making sure that when unbelievers are here, we invite them here, and when they come here, we love them, we care for them, we show them what a true community of Christians are really about, that we're genuine, we love one another, we believe the truths of Scripture, we teach that. That we're genuine with one another, we believe in the power of the gospel, we can leave the results to God. It's sad when some churches, like ours, are having to go up not only against unbelievers that are tearing down the gospel, but also other churches that have changed the very meaning of what church is all about. They no longer follow what the New Testament says. They really no longer believe in the power of the gospel. Because if you believe in the power of gospel, you don't need to change anything. You know God's going to work. And you know the people that are going to get saved are going to be the ones that God had elected from all eternity anyways. It's not based upon how nice your show is, how excited you make people feel on Sunday morning. If it were that and you had a convert, you'd never know whether it was you that converted them through the power of persuasion or whether it was really God. Well, actually, you would know. Just wait a few months. Take away all of the thrills and everything like that. Do they follow Christ, pick up their cross and follow? Yes or no? Because if they don't, they weren't converted. And if they do, it wasn't your light show that converted them. It was the power of the gospel. I don't mean to say that church should be boring. <laughs> I'm just saying, trust in the power of God. He changes lives and leave the results to God. Father, as we come to your table, we would pray that we would be so excited about our relationship with you 
that everything else pales in comparison. Father, thank you for those that led us in worship today. Thank you for your word. We commit it to you to bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.